Well, we've got Acts 28 here, and uh, I want to focus almost totally on the record that we've got there in verses 2 down to, uh, down to 6 of Paul and this viper. Now, these people assumed, of course, that Paul was going to get caught up with by justice, and so they saw that uh, this snake jumped out on him, and they thought, right, he's uh, not going to be allowed to live vengeance, and that is uh, the Greek word dike, uh, and it could well be a reference to the God of justice, uh, the God of, of right, does not allow him to, to continue living. And Paul, I want to just note, does not correct them. He doesn't say, look, guys, the idea of your gods and all that is simply nonsense. He just shakes the, the thing off into the snake, into the, uh, into the fire. And so by the, the miracle that he did, he really deconstructed all their wrong ideas about a god of justice, a god of vengeance, etc. And that's very similar to how Jesus dealt with the demon issue. But demons don't exist. It's quite clear from the Old Testament, the connection between demons and idols, and idol is, is nothing in the world, Paul says, and it's quite clear that demons don't exist. And yet, Jesus did not specifically ever actually make that point. He did miracles that indicated that effectively these ideas are nonsense, that God is far greater than any of those ideas. And this is the same with, with, I think, how Paul deals with their idea of a god of vengeance and the gods sort of, uh, some sort of nemesis kind of thing, catching up with the, the sinner. And you actually see that again uh, in chapter 27, when we've got uh, the description there of the, the ship getting lost at sea, as it were, in being driven up and down in Adria, the Adriatic. And yet they weren't really in the Adriatic Sea at all. They were lost at sea and they had no idea they, where they were. They assumed they got blown up north into the Adriatic when actually they were right in the middle of the Mediterranean. And yet that wrong idea is not specifically corrected. And I just love the way that that is a theme in the Bible that you can see right the way through that wrong ideas are not specifically corrected in that sense, very often, but there is by implication the, the statement that God is infinitely greater than those wrong ideas. And I think that that gentleness of God, I think we should just take a lesson from in our dealing all the time, not only with people who have wrong theological ideas, but people who are wrong in all sorts of other things. It can be right down on the domestic level that you know, a child is convinced they're right and you're wrong, and you don't fight every battle, and yet you win the war. Um, and I think we need to take that on board, right down to our, our personal, interpersonal relationships. But the great thing, of course, is that Paul, shivering and cold, and the old guy, after all, relatively speaking, in first century terms, he was an old man, Paul the aged, as he describes himself, writing from, from Rome soon afterwards, um, he is out there gathering firewood. Now, in the first century culture, just as it is in the third world today, gathering firewood was distinctly the work of women and children. And yet Paul does it. And I think little things like that indicate a huge amount about a person. That 
when all the other guys are there sort of uh, just amazed they've been saved traumatized by what they've been through the last uh, the last few days and of course the the swimming or sailing on bits of uh, bits of driftwood and, and bits of the ship uh, to the shore he is absolutely in control he says okay guys look we're cold now we need to get some firewood and he goes out and does it and I think that all shows a calmness in him that is also reflected in the way that there is no indication in this little account we've got here that he panics. When a snake jumps out on you, you typically panic. I've only ever had it uh, once in my life that a dangerous snake uh, came near me and jumped at me. And I mean, man, I I ran. I, I completely freaked. And yet you seem to get the impression that Paul is very calm. Now, why was he like that, and why was he not so traumatized as probably most of the others were, so that he is the one who says, okay, guys, you know, we need some, some firewood, okay, I'll go out and find some. Well, it's because he took really seriously what he'd been told when he was on the ship, that you must see Rome, that this plan that you've got, you will get there. Verse 24 of chapter 27 He'd been told, you shall be, you must be brought before Caesar. And so, because he really believed that, he took God at his word, he was not phased by crises. And we tend to respond very badly and poorly to crises in our lives. And it's often our response to crises which is us at our weakest point. And yet, if we really believe that in the end, it is God's intention that we should be in God's kingdom, all those crises, even death itself, we come to see within that wider context that I am on a journey, and the destination and the end point I have been promised. And therefore, whatever is going to happen on the way there is somehow within God's plan, and nothing ultimately is going to stop me getting there if this is truly God's will and I take God at his word. And that's, I think, why he has the self-possession to go and gather firewood, and that's why I think he has this calmness when the, the snake jumps out upon him. Now, what had happened is that he'd gathered up this firewood, or this, uh, uh, this wood that was lying around, and there was a snake, uh, a poisonous snake, within the the firewood and yet he obviously didn't realize that and he assumed that the snake was just uh, part of the firewood he assumed that that snake was actually a a stick to be thrown on the fire it's likely that this snake was actually hibernating that's i think what uh, what was the case the snake was hibernating and paul just assumed it was a uh, uh, a stick, and he grabs it up and uh, throws it under the fire, and then, way the uh, the heat of the fire makes the snake come out of hibernation, and it jumps onto Paul's uh, Paul's arm, Paul's hand. Now wait a minute. A fire, a burning fire, and a snake that becomes a stick. Well, th- this is Moses. This is Moses at the burning bush, and. What happened with Moses at the burning bush, the uh, stick became a snake, and he had to put out his hand and, uh, and take it. So there's the, the connection between the hand, and then his hand, Moses' hand, is made leprous, and then it's made, made 
made normal again. And that is all uh, very similar, I think, to what's going on here. That he's apparently for sure dead, that this venomous snake uh, has grabbed him, and it seems that that's it. And then, well, he's cured. The next minute, just in a moment, in a split second, it's all okay. And it all happens by a fire. So I think that God is using this circumstance to tell Paul, you really are Moses. I, I, I'm confirming you as Moses. And if you look through Paul's letters, it's quite clear that he sees the similarities between Moses and himself. There's a whole section in my, my book on Paul about Paul and Moses. Don't forget that Paul is going to Rome... And he's already written to the Romans, and the letter we have to the Romans, and in that letter, he makes a lot of allusion to Moses, and puts himself in Moses' place, and he makes the amazing statement, I could wish myself accursed from Christ, for the sake of my brother, Israel. And he's without doubt alluding there to Moses being willing to give up his place in eternity, to have his name blotted out of God's book, so that Israel might be saved. But of course God didn't quite accept that, because he basically says to Moses, I don't uh, accept substitutionary sacrifice, I am a God of representation, representative sacrifice. And so, that's why Paul says, I could wish myself a curse from Christ. He knew that it could never be that simple, because he learnt the lesson from Moses, that he could just give up his salvation, and Israel would get in. And that, that was a, an amazing height of devotion and of love for Paul and Moses, of course, to, to get to. And Paul says to them, when he, he tells the Romans that, he, he says, my conscience bears witness about this in the Holy Spirit. And I think what he means is, these aren't just fine words, because words like that are very cheap. The Holy Spirit actually has told me that my conscience, my feeling about this is true, that this is genuinely how I do feel. So then he had been really motivated and inspired by Moses' desire and willingness to give up his eternal salvation for others. So great was his love for the Israel that rejected him. And I think in this incident here, God is confirming Paul in that. He's saying, you wrote that to the Romans, and here you are on the way to Rome. Okay, I'll just confirm you. In one sense, our lives are a struggle, I think, to attach meaning to event. And, of course, we don't always get there. But I think it is true that God seeks to confirm us in the way in which we are going. And this is, I suppose, almost the art of spiritual life, to perceive God's hand. And it's a, a duet, really, between God and ourselves that... He moves here, and we move in, respond, in response, and then he confirms us in that, and we move further, and he comes to meet us, etc. Of course, he's the one who uh, takes the initiative all the time. Now, notice also that he has written to the Romans about the idea of righteousness and justice. The whole of Romans 1-8 to is all courtroom language. And the idea is that we stand in the dock before God and our sins testify against us and we are, of course, condemned. And he says in Romans 1 and 2 that let us not think that we are any better 
than the very worst murderer or homosexual or, or sexual pervert or whatever. As soon as you think you're better than them, that, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, but I, I, I don't do that, or I wouldn't do that, he sort of says, aha, uh -huh, you know, the, the trap has been sprung and you have fallen into it. As soon as you think like that, you are the man. You are the person who has done that. And so, these ideas, in a funny way, the, the ideas that he worked out there in Romans, are now uh, being sort of taught to him in practice. He's again being confirmed in his understanding of things. Because he goes on in Romans to say that because we are in Christ, we again stand in the, in the dark before the justice of God, before his righteousness, and we are justified. We are counted right. We are declared legally in the right. God doesn't just turn a blind eye and wave us through and say, yeah, well, like, learn your lesson and don't do it again, because that would not be justice. What he's saying there in Romans is that because we are in Christ, the supreme rightness and righteousness of the Lord Jesus is counted to us who are baptized into Christ, who are now counted as servants of righteousness, this is the whole point of Romans 6, and therefore, because of our status in Christ, we who stand as sinners in the dark are then with utter legitimacy and integrity declared right. And we are therefore praised by God, and we therefore are assured of future salvation if we abide in Christ. Now, I, I said that all those ideas are sort of being uh, exemplified here in practice. Well, they say, well... Uh, According to vengeance, and I've said that that was probably the name of their, their god, that they thought the, one of their gods, the god of vengeance, the god of right, the god of justice, uh, he's surely going to smite this man down. He got out of the, the shipwreck, but vengeance, uh, justice, rightness uh, will not allow him to continue living because he must surely be a murderer. Now, Paul was a murderer, don't, uh, don't forget that. But it's interesting that he, he uses the idea of murder in Romans 1 and 2 when he, he says that, in fact, we are all uh, as bad as murderers. And John, in his different way, makes the same point, that if you hate your brother, which at some point we all have done, then we are murderers. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, made exactly the same point. So then... Paul is, as it were, quite rightly in the hands of right, of justice, and he should die. And the snake, of course, represents sin, and the sting of uh, the, the snake brings death. The sting of sin is death. And when he talks in 1 Corinthians 15 using those very terms, again he understood this. And sort of right before his eyes, not contrived at all by Paul, because he didn't contrive this situation. God and providence contrived this. Uh, all these ideas that he'd worked out in practice to the Romans, to the Corinthians, were suddenly being exemplified before his own eyes. That 
he who was a murderer should die. And vengeance, this Greek word dike, uh, right, justice, quite rightly said, you should not live. Paul, you might have survived a shipwreck, but ultimately, Paul, you are a murderer and you've got to die. And he was a sinner, as we all are. And so the snake, representing sin, gets a hold of him. And as I uh, uh, read the, the record here, he was bitten and he should have died because they were all waiting there for the thing to swell up, for the hand to swell up, uh, and for him to drop down dead, uh, as they would have seen other people die when they'd been bitten by these kind of snakes. And yet, no, he survives. And he, has n he feels no harm whatsoever. This sin, this snake that's got a hold of him, he just shakes off, and it falls harmless to him, into the, the fire, into condemnation, into destruction. And so all those ideas that he had had in his mind about the sting of sin being death, etc., that he wrote about to the Corinthians, uh, the idea that we are all murderers, um, and the justice of God, the decare, the vengeance of God, demands that we should die, but no, we are declared right. Again, decare, this whole family of words, righteousness, justice, vengeance, rightness, it's all this Greek word decare, which is translated here, vengeance. Vengeance, uh, verse 4, suffers um, not to live. It's true that he shouldn't have lived, uh, and yet he was declared right. Now that is happening in our lives, in that all the things that we understand in theory about the gospel, about sin, about death, about salvation, about the work of the Lord Jesus, God brings about circumstance in human life so that we learn in practice what this is all about. Job had something similar when he says, I heard of you, of God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And, of course, he had to go through all the things he went through to come to that uh, possibility to, to say that. And so all the things that we know about being counted right, about being seen as perfect and righteous and declared right because we're in Jesus, you will find that God brings things into your life to make you realize that. It may be that you, you, you see someone involved in a legal tangle and you learn a lesson from it, or something personally happens to you. When, for example, it could be that you're very weak spiritually one day, one morning, one evening, and you do things you shouldn't do and say things you shouldn't, and then suddenly God brings a grace into your life that assures you of his acceptance of you. Whatever it is, or it may, you may see it happening in the life of somebody else. In Paul's case, it was this strange incident with, with the snake. Now, God will do that. And those ideas that perhaps you learnt in Sunday school, or you learnt as you studied uh, the basics of the Gospel before you were baptised, God will work in practice in your life to help you see, as Paul puts it, the power thereof. To see it all wonderfully true in practice. To see it all coming real. And he uses circumstances like this. For example, 
We are not treated, in one sense, as rightness, as dike, as vengeance demands. You know, actually, if you look in your life, you'll see that every single day in which you live. The grace of God not judging you as you should be judged. Uh, and you see it in, in the lives of others. Um, and or you, you may see it in circumstance, like this circumstance that Paul was, was in. And all the time we're being encouraged to perceive again the basic truths of the gospel that he outlines there so clearly academically in, in Romans. And of course it's interesting that he wrote all that about righteousness and justification to the Romans, and here he is on the way to Rome, probably remembering the letter that he had written to them, probably he knew it off by heart, and there he is, the, this incident happens, and it's as, like an acted parable, right in front of his eyes and the eyes of others. And of course the uh, great encouragement to him and to us was that the venom of the snake ultimately had no power, uh, because God had chosen to declare him right. And, you know, this is the, the hardest thing maybe to believe, but it's what we remind ourselves of here at the breaking of bread, that my sin is not ultimately a barrier between God and myself. That his plan of justifying us, because we are in Christ, if we believe in that, um, is stronger than our own failure. Now his hand, it says, was bitten by the snake in verse 4, and yet straight on in verse 8, you read again about that same hand of Paul. That that same hand of Paul that had been bitten, and really he should have died, was used to heal others. Now, again, you, you see something wonderful there, that we are being encouraged, I think, that our ministry to others in practice becomes effective, first of all, by our own conviction of personal failure. Our conviction that really I should not be here, I should be dead, but I have accepted that and I have died with Christ, and God counts me as right. And yet, never again with any pride can we say that, because we realize that we should not be here. And of course, it's that same snake-bitten hand that God used to write inspired letters by his Spirit. Colossians 4.18 The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. Remember my chains. That's how Colossians ends. Clearly he's writing from Rome. So the same, because uh, he says, you know, remember my chains. Uh, so the same hand that was bitten by the snake was the very same hand which was used by God to, to write inspired letters. So all the time, God is using people who have been convicted of their own failure and their own weakness. And that is the basis upon which we can effectively serve others and effectively do ministry for him. Now, of course, there's another uh, aspect to him uh, being being grabbed by a, by a deadly snake and, and surviving. It's pretty clearly also an allusion to Mark 16, verse 18, where Jesus says in the context of the Great Commission that they shall take up snakes and they shall not be hurt. Well, that's clearly exemplified here by Paul, and he must have seen the connection with that. 
So I think the Lord was doing that to, to say to Paul, look, you really are part of the Great Commission. Even though you are a prisoner, even though you're in chains, even though you're, you know, you're, you're cold and wet and lonely and have suffered the loss of all things, that there you are probably just with a loincloth around you, shivering and cold on the, the beach uh, of an island that you don't know where it is, surrounded by what are called barbarian people, having lost absolutely everything, having nothing, no documents, no food, no nothing to your name. Uh, a prisoner. And for someone of Paul's ability, it must have been pretty depressing. And Jesus is saying to him, I think, by this instant, look, you can still go out there and do the Great Commission. You are part of that Great Commission. And I just showed you that because here you are. You took up a, a deadly snake in your hand and you were not hurt. Mark 16:18. That's what you do when you're on my work. And that is, again, a great encouragement. Uh, and we see that in our lives because we all tend to feel that we are enchained, that we're stuck in a life situation that is not ideal. And we, we can easily think, but what can I do in this situation? I can't serve God as I would like to. And God sometimes, through situations, says, yes, you can, and not only you can, but you are actually doing that. And so we are now faced up against the, the bread and the wine, which are the, the symbols of the, the love of God and the, the judgment of God in the death of, of Jesus. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus said. And the amazing fact that because we are in him, because of his death for us, we have died. We have recognized that we were sinners and we have died with him in baptism and in the life of, of dying as a process that we go through with him. And yet, because of that, his resurrection life breaks through even now into our mortal flesh. And ultimately, the power of sin, the power of the viper, uh, is not ultimately of any moment or consequence, because for we who believe in what we are now facing up to in the bread and wine, and in, in what is behind, of course, the, those symbols. For us, not even our own sin, not even the, 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 the grip of the snake upon our hand, can ultimately be a barrier to our eternal salvation.